Mexico City is one of the largest metropolitan areas in the world today, with a population of over 20 million. But in 1900, Mexico City had a population of just 350,000 people. Starting in the 1920s, Mexico City grew rapidly. By 1930, the city's population had already reached 1 million. By 1950, the population was between 2 and 3 million. And in the 1970s, the metropolitan area, with its suburbs, reached over 10 million people. As a result of the city's rapid urbanization, urban conditions and policies in Mexico City were some of the most pressing issues for the Mexican government during the 20th century. Housing, in particular, became a perennial problem in need of a solution. How did Mexico City's architects and post-revolutionary leaders respond to these challenges? What policies and plans did the Mexican government adopt in its attempt to solve housing and sanitation problems and urban inequality in their capital? How did modernism feature in these plans? And how did modernist ideas become incorporated into urban developmental economics? And finally, how did Mexico's social security agency become a major provider of housing and a key player in urban development in Mexico City? I'm Catherine Zubovich, and today we'll be exploring these questions with Sarah Selvage, a PhD candidate in the history department here at Berkeley. Sarah's dissertation, titled Modernism and Miracles, Architecture, Housing, and the State in Mexico, is a history of transnational ideas about cities and the role that these ideas played in shaping national politics and the built environment in Mexico during the 20th century. Welcome, Sarah. Thanks for having me. Sarah, I wonder if you could start by introducing us to Mexico City in, say, the 1920s. What was the city like in the early 20th century? How had it developed in the years immediately before this rapid population growth that begins in the 20s? In the first decades of the 20th century, Mexico City was already beginning to change, but it was still a very pre-modern city in many ways. It was a city focused around what had been called the traza, or the central area of the city planned during the colonial period in the same location of the Aztec city, Tenochtitlan. There was a huge plaza in the center, the cathedral and the municipal buildings were located on the plaza, and the streets around that area were gridded from the north to south and east to west. The city was already seeing some growth in other areas as early as the 19th century, which saw major economic and demographic changes, and especially with the chaos of the Mexican Revolution, which began in 1910, a lot of people came to the city. By 1920, the center of the city was in pretty bad shape. Old buildings, unpaved roads, open sewers, overcrowding, and a lot of elites were moving to new neighborhoods in the south and west along a big avenue called Reforma. And the population growth um, in Mexico City in the 20th century is pretty incredible. Um, I wonder if you can speak a little bit about what caused that kind of growth? Sure. So um, as far as uh, what are called the push factors in terms of what pushed people out of other areas into the city, um, there's basically two major aspects. Um, one is uh, rural decline. Um, changes in the rural economy with industrialization um, or sort of early industrialization um, around the turn of the 19th century was a big factor um, and also emphasis on development and modernization in urban areas as opposed to um, you know, affecting changes in the countryside and then also the Mexican Revolution was a big factor um, very disruptive um, chaotic violent 
And so that was something that caused a lot of people to leave their homes and sort of head out for the city. As far as um, pull factors, which are what brought people to the city, it's some of those same things, right? These um, economic and um, sort of political changes that um, created opportunities for people, or at least potential opportunities for people in cities. Um, more jobs, uh, sort of increased specialization of cities, um, growth of industry, um, things like cigar factories, um, where people could work uh, without a lot of training. Um, these, these were the early, uh, early pull factors, and those just kind of took off over the next decades um, as the economy got more and more industrialized and more focused in urban areas. Mm -hmm. um, so as you discuss in your dissertation, some of the earlier plans proposed for Mexico City came from modernist circles, right? Um, can you tell us about these plans and about their planners um, and about how Mexico became sort of a hub for transnational modernist planning ideas really in the 1930s? Sure. So Mexico City was the center of a really active and very transnational intellectual life during this period. The case of the visual arts is the most well-known, with Diego Rivera and Frida Kahlo being the most famous. But photographers, filmmakers like the Surrealists, for example, writers, musicians, sculptors, designers, and architects, all of these people circulated in a very bohemian culture that was also really connected to radical politics. Um, as far as planning, there were some more establishment figures um, who undertook projects based on the ideas of the Garden City, planning of things like transportation infrastructure um, and that kind of thing. But there were also a handful of really radical young architects who were inspired by functionalism. And even though they didn't build that many projects, their ideas were really influential. So functionalism was basically the belief that form should follow function instead of, say, the conventions of a specific architectural style. So Mexico's functionalists really came down to a small group of architecture students who read the work of the European modernists, especially Le Corbusier. Um, his book was published in Mexico in the late 20s, so it was kind of circulating um, among all the more radical students in the architectural school. And there were a couple of figures in the kind of old guard architects. Um, one, um, one in particular uh, who, was, who had a lot of state commissions, and then another who was more of a kind of thinker um, and a professor. And, and they both really supported these guys, even though um, they, these older figures were part of this previous generation. Um, they really were mentors to these young radical figures. And I think that was really important, um, especially this professor, um, Jose Villagran was his name, and he, he really promoted the idea that architects had a social responsibility. Um, and that was a really, um, that was a very important aspect of what drove the functionalists. Like the European architects that they followed, the Mexicans, um, sought to radically simplify architecture, to create minimum buildings without any decoration or any extravagance. Um, as radical as they were architecturally, though, they were also political radicals. Um, they were socialists and really dedicated to the idea of creating housing for workers. So they were part of a whole milieu of politically active artists and intellectuals, um, and even one of the functionalist architects 
designed the home and studio of Frida Kahlo and Diego Rivera. Um, his career took some complicated turns after that, but that's the subject for another talk. Um, in terms of housing, um, which is what I really focused on in the dissertation, the functionalists only got to build a couple of projects that were basically prototypes for workers' neighborhoods with several hundred homes altogether. Um, and while people certainly didn't want to live in squalid homes in the overcrowded center area um, or in sort of ramshackle, you know, self-constructed shacks on the outskirts, um, they didn't really like the functionalist homes that much mm -hmm. either. Um, they were very austere. Um, some people describe them as cold, mm -hmm. um, but they, they were definitely... Um, an extreme example of this kind of modernist architecture that um, came into Mexico during this time. Hmm. Um, how did um, national ideology um, come to play a role in city planning as well as modernism? Um, were there specifically Mexican ideas about housing that maybe collided with or were influenced by these functionalist ideas that you've just described? Yeah, definitely. This is really important, and it's a tension that um, continues throughout the whole period of this dissertation. Um, all of the architects I look at in different ways were really aware of both international thinking and very interested in the specific context of Mexico. So this really came out in the debates about functionalism, and that's actually one of the reasons why I say that functionalism was so important in this context, even though there weren't so many actual constructions. Um, I should say that there were some a, a good number um, of schools and actually hospitals that were inspired by functionalism, and um, you can see why that would make sense, right? It's a good fit for the functionalists. Um, providing um, education and healthcare is something they also were dedicated to. And it's a good fit for the new post-revolutionary government too, right? After sort of the chaos of the revolution, it's part of the institution building and fulfilling the revolutionary promise. So that's, that's part of how um, architecture really gets tied up with the state, um, the state project, right? To build for this new modern post-revolutionary nation. Um, but there's still really important debates about the style of how those things should be built. And for the functionalists, architecture should have no decoration or embellishment, right? So these, these two things, decoration and embellishment, were basically the traditional ways of making marking buildings um, as specifically national or specifically Mexican, right? But at the same time, the functionalists argued that architecture wasn't really an art at all. So these sort of um, decorative ways of making something national to the functionalists were not just, well, they were going to say they're not meaningful, but they are actually abhorrent. I mean, they're, it's just um, exactly the opposite of what they're trying to do. Um, Juan O'Gorman, who was one of the architects um, in this circle, famously compared this discussion about you know, specifically Mexican aesthetics very dismissively to the question of whether train cars should be designed or decorated differently in France and in Mexico, right? Buildings, he said, like train cars, dams, or other kinds of purely functional constructions, of course, should not have any decoration, right? But that's not to say that they weren't interested in the specific needs of Mexico, 
right? They actually were pretty nationalistic. They felt like it was through function, the function of architecture that buildings should be Mexican, not through decoration. Mm-hmm. Um, and what it really comes down to is a debate about whether architecture is considered an art or a purely technical endeavor. Mm-hmm. And obviously the functionists were on the side of the purely technical. Mm-hmm. Um, let's turn now to uh, Carlos Lasso, um, who's the subject of your third chapter. Um, now, Lasso, as you discuss, was an architect, but he was also a politician. Um, and his work brings together uh, aesthetic and economic ideas in ways that really benefited the Mexican context. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about Lasso and especially about his theory of integrated planning, which I thought was so interesting? Yeah, um, so he's really someone who brings together um, these, this, a lot of the questions that are involved in this debate I was just talking about, mm-hmm. um, about whether how architecture can be specifically Mexican and and how much it's sort of a technical or, as you say, economic endeavor, right? And it's funny, I don't want to imply that Lasso was disingenuous because actually he was quite earnest, but um, this idea of integrated planning is in a lot of ways um, a a manner of saying planners and architects should be in charge of everything, (laughs) Um, like really everything. (laughs) Um, Modernism itself is really based on the idea that things need to be planned together, right? That can be seen as uh, total planning, or it can mean integrating things like transportation planning and housing with leisure and recreation, which is another kind of framework that the modernists set up. But also it can mean the idea that architecture encompasses all the arts, which was the idea of the Bauhaus. And for Lasso, Uh, He basically thought architect planners should do all of these things. Um, Economic planning, political planning, cultural studies, um, architecture, and just about anything else you can think of. Um, He was a real champion also of of this concept called integración plástica, which um, roughly translates as plastic integration, but it basically means the integration of architecture and the arts. So mostly in the Mexican context, it meant monumental murals on the exteriors of modernist buildings, um, as well as extensive sculptural programs and plan sites. Um, so Integración Plástica was also a way that architects in the later 40s and into the 50s, especially Lasso, um, sought to mark their buildings as specifically Mexican. Uh, to sort of parlay the nationalist pedigree of the muralists. Um, as you can see, this is a pretty um, drastic change from the posture of the functionalists. So that's why I was saying before that Lasso is a real kind of bridge, right? He, he brings these same ideas about the technical importance, the economic planning, and the sort of specific function of architecture um, and its social role um, as as a way of being nationalist and fitting into the Mexican context. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, he adorns these buildings with art. So he really um, kind of takes everything. And that's that's why I say he, he wanted to do everything. And this, this idea of integrated planning um, becomes almost like an umbrella for planners um, and architects to, to sort of organize um, not just building, but also, like I said, um, all these other aspects of planning. Um, 
and and this idea of integración plástica has really been controversial. Um, it was then, and it still is. Um, it's sort of looked down upon by um, a lot of contemporary critics. Um, and at the time, one architect even compared it to a businessman wearing a feather headdress mm-hmm. <laughs> because because of this irony, right? Mm-hmm. And because of this tension between the sort of austere universal geometry of modernism and the decoration of the murals, which is just about um, the opposite of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I have to say, I think there's really more to it than that. Um, and not going into that uh, too much in my dissertation because it's such a uh, big topic that it gets sort of unwieldy and comes in in a lot of different ways. But uh, I'm hoping to write an article about that uh, soon after I finish the the dissertation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it sounds really interesting. More to come. <laughs> yeah. Great. Um, let, so let's turn back to the question of um, housing and the housing problem, okay. right? The housing problem that becomes a housing crisis shortly. Mm-hmm. Um, what happened to the functionalists in the post-war period? What happened to their ideas? So um, as far as the sort of core of young radical functionalists um, that I was talking about earlier, um, that really changed for a couple reasons. Um, unfortunately, one of the figureheads of the movement died in a car accident when he was about um, he was about 32. So mm-hmm. that had um, sort of a tragic ending. And while he was very celebrated um, after his death, um, which was um, during the time that he was very active, right? so it was kind of at the early peak of his career, um, and he was very celebrated not just by his core friends, but really by the whole architectural establishment. Um, but those ideas really fell out of favor um, pretty soon after that. Um, his he, he was the one who had designed one of these prototype neighborhoods. And a, even just a couple of years after his death, um, there's an address by one of the major figures in the architectural establishment. And he basically proclaims that project a failure. Hmm. He talks about um, ways that the... Um, buildings were altered by the residents, that these um, large windows that um, had been hailed as this, you know, means to allow light to enter their lives and all of these, you know, there's all this fancy rhetoric about that and all of this planning for it. And then it turns out that the residents end up taping over some of the windows (laughs) because there's too much light. Um, And so, uh, and so it just never really takes hold um, as a, um, as a paradigm for building this sort of more extreme functionalism. But these ideas, like I said, this debate remains the same, right? These ideas about um, about the function of architecture, about the role of architects, um, and this same these same debates about how architects decide what people need. Um, and even these values of light and air circulation and efficiency, mm-hmm. lack of adornment, all of these values um, are still relevant Um, even into the 40s, 50s, and 60s um, throughout the rest of the dissertation. Mm -hmm. Um, One of the themes um, throughout your dissertation is uh, that of the connection between architects and the state, right? So Mm -hmm. um, how did Mexican architects view their increasingly close relationship with the Mexican state? Um, That's that's tricky. And I think I would probably suggest a little bit of a different way to get at this because... Mm -hmm. Um, it's almost impossible to describe one trajectory in terms of the role of architects in the state. Um, 
partly because, of course, different architects had a different role, different roles within the state um, and different relationships. So I think maybe um, I'd want to ask, why did architects play such an important role in politics in Mexico more generally? Um, and one reason I think uh, I mentioned before is that the housing crisis was such a big problem. And it was so severe in Mexico City, which is precisely where national politics, intellectual circles, the university, the world of finance, all of these things were all concentrated in the capital. So there's really um, a lot of exchange of ideas, um, all of the resources are there, and there's this sort of glaring, massive problem. And also, these years were the years of institution building, right? Each of the government institutions had a new modern headquarters that was a really important part of its image, mm -hmm. sort of uh, in the built environment of the city, and also um, as, as sort of um, uh, almost like a, a branding, right, if you want to think of it that way. And not only that, it was following, um, by the time we, we, we get into the 1940s, it's really following on the early years of that I was talking about before, sort of building hospitals and schools, right? These were really important aspects of the revolutionary promise. It was kind of taking care of the basic needs of the population. Um, and it was done in large part through building these hospitals and schools, right? So architecture, the architecture of the hospitals and schools is really important, and they were all built by modernist architects. And so between this sort of... Um, modern headquarters and these institutions, architecture became really important in terms of creating an image of a modern country, doing right by its promises and its citizens. And in addition to that, um, more generally, intellectuals have had a really important role in Latin American politics, going back even to the colonial period. So I think in Mexico, there's really a coming together of modernism, architects, and politics that really speaks to this moment of the mid-century decades. Mm -hmm. um, you focus in your later chapters um, on the financialization of housing policy, right? Um, in, in the 1940s, financial tools, you argue, came to replace architectural ones in the promotion of social change um, and urban improvement. Uh, this led to some very large-scale planning schemes that were implemented starting in the late 40s. Um, can you describe how this took place? So um, in addition to partnering with state agencies in terms of like the um, direct provision of housing, there was um, a, a bank um, created during this period that um, was sort of a nucleus um, of a web of planning agencies, right? They hosted conferences and meetings. They commissioned uh, very exhaustive studies of the housing problem and extensive um, recommending financial policies, and they even, um, this bank, this is, I thought this was so curious, this bank published a bi-monthly journal um, that had essays, analysis, and proposals about the housing crisis. The reason I say it's curious is it's really um, almost like an architectural journal, um, and, and so it's a, you can really see uh the mark of the architects working within this bank, and there were um, a handful of modernist architects kind of at the helm. And these architects and the planners at the bank really helped establish home lending, like uh, the provision or support for housing credit as a social service, right? Um, and so they basically were in a position um, 
within the bank of looking, you know, and doing all these studies, right, of looking at the problem as a whole. Where these other agencies I've talked about so far have mostly looked at um, housing for a particular group of workers or a particular sort of subset of the population, where these guys are really looking at the whole problem and it's, as we've said, it's massive, right? And, and so they start to see that, um, despite the fact that they themselves are architects, they start to see that this is not a problem that can be solved through architecture. They don't have the means to build enough homes for an, all the people that need them. So they start thinking of financial solutions instead, of changing structures of finance, um, institutionalizing credit and banking for the popular sector, which was a huge change um, after the Mexican Revolution. Um, all of these things that they, they feel like they can have more of an impact on the larger problem by, by taking these steps um, instead of actually constructing buildings. Um, so it, it's ironic um, because these are actually among the, these, are, these guys are kind of like the um, inheritors of the functionalist mantle in a way. They're mm -hmm. the sort of most dedicated um, to this problem and very, um, very dedicated to the idea of architecture um, solving social problems. And yet they really, I argue in the long run, um, not necessarily immediately, but in the long run, they end up setting up this idea of credit as social welfare hmm. instead of housing as social welfare or as a social solution to the social problem. And so as the problem kept getting bigger, um, this idea of an economic answer or a financial solution um, gained prominence. Hmm, that's really interesting. Um, and you also describe how, in addition to this bank with its conferences and journal, uh, there were a number of different institutions that took over housing and planning policies, only to be replaced in the following decades by newer institutions. Right. So in the fifties, uh, it was the Me it was Mexico's Social Security Agency that actually became the largest or or a major provider of housing in Mexico City. Um, can you explain how the Social Security Agency found itself in the business of building and allocating housing? And, and what kind of housing did this agency end up building? To me, this was really pretty surprising, um, especially if you compare it to our own Social Security Agency, which is purely in charge of financial security. Um, so there were several reasons that Mexico's Social Security Agency took on the housing problem. Um, first, it was because the agency, which I should say, it was called the EAMS, which just stands for um, the Mexican Institute of Social Security, but they like these pronounced acronyms. <laughs> so um, the EAMS was primarily focused on urban industrial workers, right? That, those were its beneficiaries. So those workers were the ones who faced the most serious housing shortage. Um, second, the Eames had two directors who were really interested in the housing question. And they were, I think, basically fascinated by architecture and the artistic and intellectual movement that it was a part of. Um, and this really points to a couple things that are important about Mexico's government agencies during this period. One is the high priority of urbanization and industrialization within the government. I think this is part of what we were getting into before, right, when we were talking about um, the movement of people from the countryside to industrial jobs, right? Um, and and that, that was happening so quickly that the housing, the construction of housing and infrastructure was sort of not keeping a pace, right? 
Um, and so that was a huge priority uh, of the government to support industrialization. And because of that, sort of by uh, association, supporting urbanization. And then second, um, the idea that modernist architecture was really like a zeitgeist. You know, there is just, um, it is so um, present in the intellectual life of so many of the key figures during this period um, in terms of uh, what's happening in the cities, um, the development even of places like Acapulco, right, are developed by these same politicians and these same architects during this time. Um, and, and so it's a moment where that's just really captivating, both aesthetically and because of the sort of logic of it, which is what we've been talking about so far. So these things really went together, right? This sort of urban industrialization and this sort of aesthetics and logic of modernism. And that's really the central argument of my project, that architecture and architectural modernism more specifically was used as a tool for urbanization and industrialization and as a means of development. So the Eames built several kinds of housing, um, but all based on modernist ideas. And their flagship, where kind of all of their resources and promotions were focused, was called Ciudad Independencia, which means um, independent city. Um, and it was, it, was, it was called that because it's sort of named after um, Mexican independence and it's kind of its central um, sort of figure or logo is this sculpture of um, one of the independence heroes mm -hmm. from Mexican history um, and, and it was opened um, inaugurated to coincide with the anniversary of independence so sort of mm -hmm. tapping into all of these sort of patriotic symbols mm -hmm. which is a very um, typical thing of the Mexican government or of most governments we should <laughs> yeah. say right um, and the reason it was called uh, Ciudad Independencia is because it was meant to be a city unto itself, right? Ciudad means city, um, with all of the amenities and services residents would need, right? The idea was they didn't have to leave. If, I mean, they could, of course, they weren't, they weren't um, limited, but everything they need was there, right? Um, and it really did. It had swimming pools, basketball courts, uh, markets, schools. And the Ames built a theater, like a, a very like a professional theater, um, where they, they still have um, professional um, theater productions there. Um, and not only that, um, all of the agency's services were available there. And this was um, also something that that happened um, institutionally at the same time as this project. Is that the Ames was the project. Um, of providing housing was part of a broader expansion of services mm. of the Social Security Agency. So again, not like our own, uh, which is much more limited, um, the Social Security Agency uh, included medical services. Um, they also had like a women's center with dance classes and, you know, cooking classes and child rearing instruction, all of these kinds of things. And they were all available within this residential complex. So to me, um, this really represents the pinnacle of that idea of integration that we were talking about with Lasso, right? Mm -hmm. And so this is almost a full 30 years after he first started talking about integrated planning. And, and this is kind of an even fuller realization of that, right? Um, they do, of course, um, 
have also very much uh, this idea of integrating the arts into life within this residential complex, not just in the theater, um, but there's also an extensive sort of mural and sculptural program, um, especially concentrated around this central plaza of the complex. And I've really been working on this idea recently, thinking about um, this kind of later manifestation of modernism. So, so Ciudad Independencia is, is inaugurated in 1960. And it's really a more humanistic approach that um, still holds on to a lot of the values of, of what we might call high modernism, but focuses more on this idea of human experience and the importance of a spiritual connection, right? Um, spiritual connection to the built environment, but also to these sort of um, like higher goals of self-realization, which is a really a new way of thinking about cultural development. And even for the Mexican state, this is tied into a way of thinking about economic development. Um, in this case, um, at Independencia, the arts, um, but also um, these ideas of citizenship become a way, um, for the architects at least, um, this, these become a way um, for workers, right? These are industrial workers, right? <laughs> and, and so they become a way for workers to kind of get connected to this higher idea of, of self, of family, and of nation. Mm-hmm. And this is something that the architects really talk about extensively. Um, and and there also were ideas that were really circulating at the transnational level. Uh, like, for example, in the ideas of the heart of the city, um, which was this sort of a proposal at the International Congress of Mar- Modern Architecture in 1951, uh, and certainly something that these architects would have been aware of and reading and talking about. So they kind of take these ideas and put them in the Mexican context and, and sort of like put it together with this idea of integration mm-hmm. that, that I argue is so particular to the Mexican modernist context and kind of parlay those into a form of sort of cultural and economic development of citizens. Mm -hmm. So as these architects are focusing on um, the issue of human experience in the spaces Mm -hmm. that they're creating, um, I have to ask, you know, how how did people, like how did industrial workers react to housing schemes like those built by the Eames? You have an, an earlier anecdote from a different project um, mm-hmm. in your dissertation that's so telling, right, where um, uh, people uh, who are moving into modernist housing schemes or these sort of modernist apartments are bringing their traditional furniture and sort of rejecting the minimalist furnishings mm-hmm. that are provided for them in these new spaces and you know they opt out of those minimalist furniture uh you know sets and yeah. just bring their traditional furniture with them so. yeah that, that's a funny one because the the designer of of this um modernist furniture um clara porset is her name mm-hmm. and she's just horrified <laughs> at um despite her her sort of very um very developed sympathies with the working people of Mexico. She's like horrified at their awful furniture <laughs> that they bring into these apartments. You know, these bulky, decorative mm-hmm. um, objects. And she talks about how they're blocking the light and the space. And, and, and she even, Clara Porset, I think, is tapping into a little bit earlier. And I think she's more kind of on the forefront of this. She's really tapping into this also, this idea 
of the humanistic approach Mm -hmm. because she's really concerned with people's like sort of interactions with space and light and materials too like even the materials of the furniture that she designs the um she uses local materials like um pine red cedar um and and some five the um chairs for example have fight local fibers um and and she feels like people are going to feel a sort of personal affinity mm-hmm. with these objects because of that um but but really to tell you the truth i wish i knew more um about people's reactions to all of these um mostly what i get to see are these are the architects kind of complaining mm-hmm. about these horrible alterations or rejections of their you know genius <laughs> They're genius, right? Yeah. So, um, luckily, um, though, there are some oral histories uh, recorded in the 1990s um, with residents of one complex. Um, so we have a little bit of a sense of their firsthand experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, some of these complexes did have newspapers, but I've only seen a couple so far. It's, um, I- I'm not sure what the chances are, but hopefully in future research trips, I might be able to get my hands on more because that would be a great source. Um, but what I do know is that through all of these projects, you know, going back to the functionalist experiments of the early 30s, there was basically a constant debate, right, between what people wanted and what architects thought was best for them. Uh, like one important factor is that, like here, there is a really pervasive preference for ownership of single-family homes in Mexico, right? Mm -hmm. So the modernists, with their ideas about communal living and economies of scale and vertical density, were really always up against that. Um, And as you probably know, the one-family, one-house model is among the least sustainable patterns on a large scale. And of Mm -hmm. course, we're talking large scale here, right? And that's sort of the whole... That's kind of what changes everything, right? Um, where individual families really want houses, um, but the architects really want <laughs> uh, really want something that works better on the scale of the city, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, what did people think about moving to these sort of newfangled buildings, right? That's really the question. When they did, uh, when they did move, and to some extent, people were really happy um, to have better conditions. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, certainly what they, we have to think about what they were moving from, mm-hmm. uh, not just what they were moving to. Um, and they definitely were also sort of puzzled by some of the qualities of the buildings. Um, and what it mostly comes down to, I think, is not that surprising. Uh, people, what I've seen is that people really liked things that felt like luxuries. Uh, they loved the swimming pools. <laughs> uh, they loved the daycare facilities, the washing machines, um, that kind of thing. But this sort of lack of ornamentation and this functionalist aesthetic, um, even when the, the projects weren't sort of radically functionalist, people just didn't like it. Um, there are a lot of stories of people, you know, adding adornments, changing things. Um, and each of the projects has kind of had kind of a different fate um, in this regard. Um, and there's also a real variety in terms of the quality of construction materials and the maintenance of these complexes. And I have to say, these are really among the most important factors as far as, like, how people feel about where they live now. Or even, you know, even in past decades, like, in the long run, um, you know, design really matters. But this idea of quality and maintenance really matter, too. Mm -hmm. Um, 
especially when it comes to the really massive complexes, mm -hmm. because those are the ones that are the most demanding. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I argue is that um, not only were those large complexes dependent on the state for their construction, they continue to be, they, I mean, their whole existence is dependent on the state because who else can manage this complex with five to 30,000, I mean, some have about 5,000 residents, some have like 30,000 residents. Wow. I mean, that's like a huge sort of task of administration, right? Mm -hmm. Constantly. And, you know, things are always breaking and always, there's always problems just because there's so many people. And so um, when things change within the state institutions, as they did, of course, um, over the decades, um, it's not always a viable model for, for the sort of long-term maintenance, especially when people are paying reduced rents. Um, th there's just constant problems, basically. So that's, and, mm -hmm. and I think that it's, you cannot underestimate the importance of that because no matter how great things start out, um, that sort of process of maintaining um, these buildings is inevitable. Mm -hmm. So the state is sort of able to um, uh, reach into people's everyday lives with these mm -hmm. planning schemes, but that comes with the side effect, you know, mm -hmm. as, as you write, with, you know, having to continue reaching right. into people's lives, right, with this maintenance. Yeah, it's like a role, it's like uh -huh. setting themselves up as a patron, right. and then, you know, in, in fact, um, all of these projects um, where the state actually built housing um, by the early to mid-80s, all of them um, were uh, transferred in some way or another out of the hands of the state. Mm -hmm. So none of these are really run by the state anymore. Right. Um, I will say that Ciudad Independencia, I think, is the best example of mm -hmm. a place to live. And, and I think um, that it has a lot to do with this idea of the humanistic approach. It's not the most architecturally interesting. Um, there are some other ones that are more sort of breathtaking or, mm -hmm. you know, picturesque um, if, you're, if you want to fetishize modernism, which um, <laughs> I think is fine <laughs> aesthetically. Um, but but Ciudad Independencia, I mean, it's a pretty nice place to live. Um, it's in pretty good shape. Um, people like living there. Ironically, however, um, the architects were so into this idea of the civic plaza for these reasons I was talking about, kind of self-realization and citizenship and all of these things. Mm -hmm. um, and now it's a parking lot. Right. <laughs> So, you know, so some of the things that they tried to do didn't work, mm -hmm. but a lot of things did. It's a, it's, a, it's a complex that's built on a smaller scale. The buildings are smaller, kind of more, um, it's not so massive and imposing. Um, and, and really, like I said, it's a, it's a pretty nice place. So um, that, one, that one kind of, um, it, it's sort of a, like I said, because it's not as architecturally impressive or, or sort of interesting. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of below the radar. Um, but to me, it's, it's a real success relative to the other projects. Mm -hmm. So I wonder, just sort of lastly, if we can come back to the title of your dissertation, right? Modernism mm -hmm. and Miracles. Yeah. Um, how do you see modernism and miracles uh, being connected, right? The, the, there's the Mexican miracle. Um, are you suggesting other kinds of miracles Okay, well? so I think we didn't talk about this in, in sort of terms of definition, but so mm -hmm. I'll just put it out there. The Mexican miracle mm -hmm. is this moment um, after World War II 
in which there is um, huge economic growth, sustained economic growth, um, at the same time that there's also um, a big um, state involvement in industrialization, right? Um, and, the, and just sort of in all matters of the economy. So it's a real um, a big moment for state-led initiatives, a big moment for economic growth, a big moment for urbanization. And so, as you can tell already, this is sort of um, the perfect setup for modernism, right? Because modernism um, is tied to urbanization, and it's also tied to the state, like we were talking about even in the maintenance, right? I mean, these ideas of modernism, these sort of large-scale planned endeavors, um, they need a patron, and it almost needs to be the state um, on this kind of a scale. And so modernism became sort of, um, to some extent, became like all things to all people, right? In this, within, at least within this political sphere, right? Mm -hmm. It became a way to industrialize, or to sort of accelerate industrialization. It became a way to fulfill the revolutionary promise, right? With its, um, with modernism's promise to, um, to create social change, right? Um, to kind of equalize the um, conditions, right, for people um, according to these universal um, benefits of light, air, space, etc. Um, and it became a way for um, people, you know, politicians within the state to kind of like, um, they also became vanity projects, right? I mean, modernism is transnational, it's modern, obviously, so it became connected also to this image of the Mexican state, right? Um, so it really, um, it really worked. Mm -hmm. It really worked, um, for the, to sort of accelerate these processes, um, that were all coming together, right? In this, um, post-World War II moment that was really a moment of a lot of optimism. And then that's something that's important too, because, um, as much as, um, all of these guys were horrified by the housing crisis and, and some of them more, more than others um, <clears throat> really dedicated to the idea of social change and social justice um, it really is a utopian idea right this idea that through the built environment you can change people's lives for the better and also sometimes that you know better than they do what they need right and so um, it doesn't always work out that way like we said um, but but it really is um, it really is a hopeful moment in a lot of ways. Um, and, and to some extent, that's, um, I think, um, you know, I've been thinking about like, what's what's different about Mexico City, because a lot of, you know, a lot of other Latin American countries, or cities, and, and, and around the world, you know, cities have had housing crises. And in the end, a lot of them have ended up as Mexico City with the only worsening um, problem. I mean, it's not that modernism solved these problems by any means, and it's not that the um, Mexico City's housing crisis or housing shortage now is, I mean, it's definitely a crisis also, but it's not this, the crisis of this moment. It's different. There's huge amounts of um, informal and inadequate housing all around, within the city, outside of the city. It's a massive problem, but um, the sort of specific contours of the problem in Mexico City were really shaped by the way that this process played out during these decades. And in particular, this idea of 
um, this this irony, the sort of central irony of this story that um, all of these values of modernism, while they served this this ideology of the state, um, they also were kind of responsible for their own undoing in this transition to a more kind of technical and economic and developmental way of looking at housing and at um, sort of how to solve these problems. I really feel like um, this sort of high moment of humanism was totally lost. Um, that the sort of what went along with these aesthetics and these um, sort of like real dedication to that specific vision um, really fell by the wayside mm-hmm. and um, we're really were left by the 1970s with a kind of state project that was devoid of any vision um, and really mostly devoid of integrity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much uh, for sharing your research uh, with us today, Sarah. Um, it's been a pleasure. Yeah, thanks a lot. I really enjoyed it.